Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. ArmorAll, less work, more clean. Terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18+. plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. It's the Autosport Podcast. We speak to McLaren Autosport BRDC Award winner Dan Tickton, winner of the 2017 Macau Grand Prix. Red Bull back Dan Tictum goes into this season on the back of a remarkable end to 2017, winning a sensational Macau Grand Prix and then the prestigious McLaren Autosport BRDC Award before securing a Formula 3 European Championship seat with Motorpark. I'm your host, Ed Straw. My first duty is to welcome the man himself, Dan Tictum, to the Autosport podcast. Now, Dan, presumably you had a pretty enjoyable break between this year and last year after what happened in November and December. Yeah, um, it was a pretty incredible end to the year, as obviously a few people will know. But uh, yeah, the break was was earned, I would say. Uh, there was a lot of stress towards the end of the year with uh, obviously the McLaren All Sport Award and uh, and everything else. So um, yeah, I had a had a, a good month off, I would say. Uh, and now we're ramping up the training, uh, getting ready for for this year again. Also joining me is All Sports resident junior single seater expert Marcus Simmons. You'll be covering F3 in depth this year. So what do you reckon of Dan's chances in 2018? I think they're pretty good because um, normally it's quite hard for a for a rookie coming into the European F3 Championship. And it seems funny to think of Dan as a rookie when he's won Macau already, but he's he's only ever done three F3 race weekends and it's just hammering out those results race after race over the course of a season that, that can be difficult. But then normally we have someone who has really starred in the previous season coming back for another year of F3 um, this year, the top five from last year's championship, who were, I would say, a, a level above everybody else, are all moving on to other things. Um, we've got a couple of race winners staying on from last year, but they're only one-time race winners, and they haven't really proved themselves yet that they can put it together for a whole season. And combined with that, we've got some really, really top talent coming up from Formula Renault Euro Cup, including Dan and Sasha Finestra as well at Carlin, and some of the top boys from Formula 4 as well uh, from uh, the European Championships. So I think it's um, a really wide open season, quite hard to call. And um, I think for a for a rookie like Dan 
coming in, this is probably a season where going for the championship is probably more attainable than it would have been, say, last year or the year before against some experienced drivers. Do you agree with that, Dan? Or do you want to manage? Yeah, I do. I mean, I think, I think, like, yeah, like Marcus says, I mean, the the top five drivers have moved on, and and there there is obviously some still good second year drivers in there, but um, I th- I think it's going to be interesting because we've got a lot of, uh, as we say, like very very good rookies coming up. So I, at the moment, I don't really know what to expect, and it's made sort of goal planning quite difficult actually, uh, because you know it's it is difficult to to tell you know exactly what's going to happen but there are some very very good drivers coming up um i, I don't feel like uh particularly threatened by a lot of them you know i think i can i can have a very good year this year uh but um yeah the aim is obviously to win but uh we'll see what uh see what happens when it all starts <laughs> well we're going to be joined later on by autosport magazine editor kevin turner who's also a mclaren autosport brdc award judge to talk about dan's performance there but first let's look back at that amazing win in macau dan you won after ferdinand hamsberg and sergio Setkamara both ended up in the in the wall at the at the final corner in that remarkable finish you also pulled off that double pass on Lando norris and maxi gunter on the penultimate lap to get into that position what was your whole experience of the last couple of laps, both with your move and then seeing what was happening in front of you as you kind of edged closer and closer? I think a lot of people would expect uh, there's a lot of emotions, but I think one of the big things I've learned uh, through throughout my career is is how to sort of keep emotions relatively stable, especially like, you know, I'm 17, 18, and I've learned a lot of lessons in the past. Um yeah, those last two laps, I would say, were probably the most exciting of my career. Because obviously, once I did get past um, uh, past uh, Lando and, and Max around the outside, uh, you because of the race before, my tyres went off very quickly. So I was still in the back of my mind worried that that could become a problem even on the last two laps. You know, cause if you lose the tyres, you can lose you know three seconds a lap. So I was a, that was I was a little bit stressed about that. Um, and I saw the last lap, the the front two uh, battling. And I know them both quite well. I mean, I know Sergio probably wanted to win more than anyone. So uh, I was expecting a, a tangle almost, actually. I was, it was in the back of my mind, sort of, sort of expecting it, but maybe not quite as dramatically as it did happen uh, on the last corner and the last lap. But um, yeah, well, once that happened, I, I didn't even really know it was the last lap. I, I just, as soon as I saw them crash, I was just like, I was just I just didn't know what was going on to be honest. I was just I had to radio the team and I was like, was that the last lap? It just <laughs> the checker flag was out, but I just almost couldn't believe that the checker flag was out, if you know what I mean. It was a uh, it was a um, very very interesting way to end uh, an amazing weekend. And I guess amazing that that's a finish in Macau that's for the ages. It's one everyone saw it went around the world on social media, loads of talk about it. So that's going to be remembered for forever pretty much and it also got people talking about you for positive reasons in a way that probably hadn't happened before in your career. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the Formula Renault season, obviously, we'll probably touch on later, was not particularly stellar. So I think um, I didn't quite make the comeback that I wanted to. Um, but Macau definitely, obviously, gave me a chance to prove that, you know, I'm forced to be reckoned with, shall we say. So uh, it's, it's good. It got, me, it got me a chance to show the more matured Dan Tickton, you know, because I think a lot of people hadn't really heard a lot about me throughout 2017 uh, until until Macau. So, and, and then I got a chance to speak and then um, I think, you know, it proved to everybody that I've uh, changed somewhat, you know. So, uh, yeah, it was good. What did you make of it, Marcus? Obviously, when two cars end up in the wall at the last corner and someone comes through, sometimes people say, well, you lucked in there. But obviously, Dan was very quick throughout the Macau weekend as if memory serves actually there were some comments after the qualifying race from Dan about how, how quick he was and he knew he was in the game so it was a it was a very impressive performance across the board wasn't it yeah that, that was that was an inspired story in the end actually because Dan had said to me on the Saturday after the first race that he thought he had the quickest car and I was umming and ahhing is that worth a story yeah let's let's do it and then of course he yeah proved us to be very wise in the event but no but it wasn't it wasn't lucky at all because um there were you know Macau's always one of those really fascinating events where there's seven or eight people who probably if things if things do go their way then they're going to win the race and um if you look at what happened to Dan earlier in the weekend Friday particularly in second qualifying where 
he just got absolutely hammered every time a red flag came out. He was about 10 seconds from finishing a really good lap that would have put him four places up the grid or something. So, um, so he was artificially far back to start with. Um, and then, you know, you had the slight issue in the first race on Saturday that set you back again, but I'm going to, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say the team were maybe being quite clever and trying things that then put you in a better situation for the race on Sunday. In the qualifying race, obviously, yeah, well, let's go back to qualifying on the, on the Friday, which like you say, was the pinnacle of bad luck. I think you could say, um, ended up sixth, but, uh, in both test sessions, um, I was quickest any time I was on the track if anyone ever went quicker than me it's because they went out after me or the track was improving or whatever so I was incredibly confident that I could be on pole and all the rest of it so I had quite a lot of pressure on me you know going into qualifying I was like I know I'm one of the quickest and if I perform I'll be the quickest um but when I when I got in the car I, I stopped thinking about all that and I just you know tried to drive as best as I could but yeah, I was. I think I was hindered massively by three red flags. I mean, particularly the last one. Um, the tyres I was on at the time had actually done eight laps already uh, and about two heat cycles, and I still went purple, purple, and then the red flag came out. So I think, uh, I think it, it it ruined everybody's momentum. You know, but particularly mine. Uh, I think Carlin were, were pretty intelligent at sending uh, Lando out in the period where most people are in the pits. So there's less likely to be red flags. Um, and that's something I spoke to Timo about. I think that was quite clever from them, to be honest, because he got his lap in, albeit the track maybe not as good as what it was at the end, but maybe two or three tenths or something. But, you know, if you get a clear lap, that's, well, I think I probably could have gone about a second quicker than what I did, actually. You know, so that was, um, and after that, I was, I wouldn't say I was as far as despondent, but I was, I was, the sort of, the win was a little bit more out of sight. But yeah. Uh, just sort of ended that there really and uh, just look forward to to the qualifying race the next day the other thing that um that i found quite interesting was um there was a period in free practice where i was watching at one of the corners out on the track and dan was going around behind joel erickson and sergio sakamara his two teammates at most part both really really quick yeah, if there's one circuit Sergio's good at, it's Macau, and and uh, you know Joel was really in the rhythm as well, and um, it was quite interesting to watch them going round for a few laps um, together because like, no one was really gaining time or, or losing to anyone, but you could I just that, yeah. you could just see Joel because he'd been driving Formula Three all year, um, he was able to get the car into the the apex with the inside front wheel just millimeters from the from the barrier with the back end rotating and it was just absolutely fantastic to watch whereas Sergio and Dan were both chucking it a bit more um but still getting through like no no problem and uh, Sergio obviously was stepping down from formula 2 and and Dan moving up and and obviously also last year there was um the new uh, safety and aero kit for the Formula 3 car which added, which has added a bit of weight so the experience of driving Formula 3 cars that Sergio and Dan had before wasn't so relevant especially going around that mountain section at Macau where it probably made it a bit more cumbersome really totally yeah, yeah you definitely notice the weight but yeah I mean in 2017 before I turned up to Macau I did two test days one with Boyo um, at Pembury because I think he wanted me to do a shakedown. That was on the old aero kit. That's double R racing yeah, for people. Yeah, yeah. Who, for the exactly. few people who don't know who yeah. Boyo is. And then <laughs> uh, we'd, I did one prep day with a new aero kit um, with a, a, a very similar to Macau setup um, at uh, at Nurburgring, and that's pretty much all I did in F3 car all year. So I didn't let that really affect my uh, attitude going into the weekend because I, I know that the year before I'd done a fair amount in F3 cars so it didn't take me long to get back used to the car um, but I think we'll struggle to have another another winner that's done two two days of testing before the Macau Grand Prix in a year so uh, yeah um, yeah like back to the back to the, obviously the updated aero kit it's it is heavier, um, and I think at a track like Macau, you you really don't see the gain from the extra the extra downforce, just because a lot of it's quite slow, and uh, yeah. So, and I think it affected how the tyres behaved quite a lot, um, because I believe I'm right in saying that the 
the structure and, and the makeup of the the Yokohama tie was um, was the same in 2014 or 15 as it is as it was this year last year sorry 2017. So the sidewall is is very very soft and obviously the more that that's being worked the more heat you generate. So I think that caught a lot of people out uh, specifically in the qualifying race where we did obviously more than you know two or three laps uh, pushing uh, and I think it particularly caught us out. Uh, motorbike. I think we were running quite an aggressive setup. Uh, like I said, I was confident we were the quickest on on the track, even within our team. Uh, I think we were were the fastest car there, to be honest. Um, but yeah, after six laps of the qualifying race, we just lost rear tyres completely, and um, yeah, lost over two seconds a lap, and it was very very difficult to to keep position and obviously drop back a little bit, which uh, again made the the light uh, of winning even even less so i had even less uh, pressure to win i was eighth on the grid for the final and i was just thinking you know i'd be ha- very very happy with a podium you know that was that was my goal but yeah uh, everyone was always saying to me like uh, tom who was looking after me that weekend timo uh, dad even they're all saying you know anything happens at macau so uh and i was just like yeah yeah whatever <laughs> from eighth to first is going to be unlikely so presumably you're sat here now hoping you can go back again this year and make it two on the bounce which is pretty rare i've i've already thought about i thought about that about the week after i won because i thought i knew i'd be in f3 um at that point and uh i'm already i'm already under pressure actually i'm already feeling the macau pressure i, I think when i return to macau I, I feel like i can drive that track probably better than anybody so you know i'll be very confident in terms of my pace but you know, like everyone always says, and again, anything can happen. So uh, we'll see. Well, I think that's uh, confidence is is deserved considering the uh, the pace there last year. But 2017 wasn't all great. You mentioned your main campaigns in Formula Renault in the two yeah. liter cars with Arden, only seventh in the standings. Yeah. You had that one supreme win uh, in in Hungary, but other than that, yes. it, was, it was very up and down. As uh, Sasa Fenestra won the won the championship, he also did Macau. So for whatever reason, you weren't able to show. The truth, yeah. yeah. Show your pace during the season. So why why was that? Was it you, um, the team, I the think, combination? Uh, first of all, I start off by ho- holding my hands up and say I did make a few mistakes. You know, obviously uh, it was my year back after a, a year out. Let's just say at the moment, because we'll probably come on to that later. Um, so yeah, it, it was it was a disappointing year. But you know, uh, the positive is I, I did learn a lot of lessons uh, again how to how to extract the most out of what you've got, you know, which is a a very important lesson to learn. I mean, if you're somebody like, I don't want to name names, but, you know, Lando's a good example. I mean, every category he's got into in the last couple of years, he's had the best kit and he's always been there. And he does a fabulous job, you know, he does. But I think it's quite good to learn the lessons I'm learning now. Because when you go to F1, it's very unlikely that you're going to be in the best car for 10 years on the trot. Arden obviously new to, to the Renault the Renault Championship, which we immediately started on the back foot. Um, I think the one of the, the, in my opinion, the biggest problem we had was making the tyre work in qualifying for uh, for the Renault because the Michelin's quite quite funny. Um, every tyre has sort of different way of working. I noticed like the beginning of the season when it was cold, uh, we were quite quick. Like pre-season testing, I know obviously people sandbag a little bit and all the rest of it, but we were right up there in winter testing and it was all looking pretty promising. As soon as we went to, you know, the big GP tracks where, you know, setup makes quite a big difference, uh, we just took basically both of the, the practice sessions to get even in the ballpark of where we should have been, as whereas the other teams who are more experienced, they turn up, you know, in the ballpark and then they get better from there throughout testing. So it, it just every every round basically we started on the back foot i mean with the exception of of the street tracks where it's more about the driver uh, i dare dare say that like you know the smaller tracks like uh, red bull ring um uh, monaco obviously and poe uh all performances were, were pretty good you know i was quite fast in the top five and uh, and all the rest of it but like when we were uh, Silverstone even though I had a good weekend at Silverstone because it was uh, qualifying with slicks and a damp track which is a good good uh, condition for me so um, that put me up you know higher than probably where I should have been but um, yeah when it when it was in the middle of the summer and it was quite warm uh, on the big GP circuits we struggled with pace quite shockingly to be honest uh, in some some ways but you know again I will s- sit here and say that the team 
uh, my engineer Matt Callahan uh, worked very very hard to do the best that they could to get give me the the best possible kit. I mean, I think in terms of how hard the team worked, it would probably be one of the hardest on the grid. Like I'd say, you know, they worked very hard to do the best. But I think obviously with the lack of data that we had. And starting on the back foot, going into every round, it was you know going to be difficult. It was close between me and Max Futrell, who uh, just put me in the rookie championship, which is uh, still slightly sour about. Uh, <laughs> but um, you know, you he, got your revenge at the end of the year. Uh, yeah, McLaren also <laughs> yes, true. Yeah, but I think everybody who knows knows that you know he had for most of the year a bit better equipment than I did. So um, anyway won't talk about that anymore um a lot of lessons learned obviously the the race win in uh, budapest was was nice as well uh qualifying was in the wet which was a good opportunity for me to show what i can do in the wet and i think i was on pole by about two and a half tenth three tenths something like that so that was good and then obviously at the start of the first race i just made a good start and uh drove away from there really and just to bring you in marcus in fairness formula run a year cup it's been a very competitive place hasn't it where it w- wouldn't yeah. take much to shuffle you back to kind of sixth, seventh. I, I I think so. I mean, especially last year because there were thirty drivers doing it regularly throughout the season, and I don't think, I don't think there's any championship anywhere in the world where it's harder to score a point than than Formula Renault Euro Cup. I agree um, with that. Yeah. It's just you can get champions from categories below Formula Renault, or even categories that you might perceive being slightly to the side of Formula Renault coming in and they're struggling to do better than 15th so it is phenomenally competitive and um, actually it's really nice to see that coming into Formula 3 this year there's um, three of the front runners from last year which I, I don't think we've had that many coming uh, to F3 in the in the past two or three seasons It'd be quite interesting to hear uh, Dan's take actually on how he thinks like, as a group they're going to get on because you've got uh, we've got Dan with Motor Park, um, Sasha Finestra with Carlin and Robert Schwartzman with Prima who are all like, really quick drivers who've all um, won races in Formula Renault last year and Finestra won the championship. Yeah, like we said earlier about the, all the rookies coming up, it's it's going to be the fact that us three are all in different teams uh, will also be interesting. I mean, I think if you if you look at motor part last year i think they were a little bit inconsistent but when they did get the car together uh similar to Macau, we they were very very quick so um i think they'll be working very very hard this year to give me the best that they can which is obviously a nice feeling you know i think i tested with timo in the year i was banned a little bit and um they were very very keen to have me for 2017 but i think um how marco wanted to make sure I'd learned my lessons before he put, you know, several hundred thousand or whatever <laughs> into me, which is obviously totally fair enough. He'd also got fed up with Formula 3 as well, hadn't he? For, for yeah, <laughs> I, I think it was a bit, a bit billionaire dominated for uh, for a couple of years, which I th- I feel like now it's coming out of that, that sort of phase. I think it happens every few years, actually, almost. Uh, I think, obviously, Verstappen started that uh, uh, of about three years ago of, um, when, uh, when he, he was in it. So, uh, and then uh, that's sort of where everyone in wanted to go. So you've got, you know, billionaires coming in and bu- buying teams and stuff, which, you know, is, is good in some ways, but, uh, you know, men- many negatives, actually, I would say. So, um, yeah. Let's look a little bit further back in your career. You mentioned Lando Norris there. You're kind of part of this generation of British drivers going right back to karting in many cases. Norris, George Russell, Callum Eilert. Are there some big rivalries there in that generation? Obviously Norris you've you've already mentioned and also you've crossed swords with him in, in cars obviously. There have been yeah, a few moments there. So what's that sort of relationship like and why do you think there's such a, a good crop of, of British drivers? I know it's not unusual for British drivers to be coming through but there does seem to be a particularly rich vein there. Totally. I mean I think I was asked this question the other day. Um, oh, you've had practice at answering that. Uh, yeah, but I can't, I can't, <laughs> it's a difficult one to answer. I mean, I think the Brits are obviously generally pretty good at pr- producing some of the best best talent talented drivers in the world. I was trying to put my finger on exactly why. Um, if you look at the earlier karting championships, Coma Cadets is a good example, and I, I had a very successful year in 2011 in that. The, the lessons that that teaches you from a young age, you know, 60 people in it, sometimes more, um, and there's a lot of slipstreaming, so you have to be quite clever with when you overtake and all the rest of it. So the, you, you you get taught so much about racecraft, you know, when you're when you're young. And I think the British 
national karting championships or the national karting championships in uh, in Britain are much stronger than you know the likes of other European countries or anywhere else in the world. So I think it's a lot of it's got to come from that. Um, but then when we talk about you know the, like you say the crop that we've uh, got at the moment with uh, Lando George and, and Callum. Um, I've raced against all of them. Uh, George, not so much because he's sort of two years ahead of me, but Lando, I've raced quite a lot. And, I, and even Callum, I've been teammates with Callum in, in Wright Karts and uh, and Zanardi. And so I, I know them all very, very well. And they're all exceptional drivers. So uh, I think it's very exciting for, for, for all the British fans. You know, we've got uh, us four coming through. And, uh, you know, the other three, uh, I haven't got anything bad to say about them, really. Um, they're both... They're, well, they're all sorry, very fair races. You know, like I, I don't have any dis- disrespectful comments to make to any of them. To be honest, they're they're drivers I respect. So, um, yeah, they've all done very very well, and they they deserve to be in the positions that they are at the moment. Uh, obviously, all particularly George and Lando, they're all very much knocking on the door of F1. So, um, hopefully, uh, I'll be the same quite soon. <laughs> what Dan's just explained about the early days in cadets is, is to me was actually quite a quite a good explanation for something that I didn't really know because um because obviously when um when the lads get a bit older when <clears throat> when they get to say 14 15 they're moving abroad to do karting quite a lot so so you're up against the the other Europeans so so it's interesting that Dan's taken it back to those earlier years where you are racing on a national level when you're 10 or 11 years old and and to me that that seems um quite a quite a good explanation for it um you know, like most people involved in car racing, I find carts a bit confusing, actually. So um, it can be a very so, <laughs> opaque world. Can't it yeah. is. It's, it yeah. is. Yeah. Um, but the it's interesting true. thing is that um, you know this generation that Dan's part of has come only one or two years after a, a French one, where you, know, you see Pierre Gasly, Esteban Ocon, and Charles Leclerc, who admittedly is Monegasque, but that's basically French, yes. <laughs> um, tweeting tweeting pictures of each other together in karting and stuff like that. So that's kind of so, the same group as Jules Bianchi, really. Maybe yeah, well, Jules was a little bit older, but still sort yeah, of in that that yeah. general sphere. So, so that's quite interesting as well. And um, opinion that Dan had about the the, the Brits there, maybe that um, was the same for them because maybe if they were racing against each other at ten or eleven, they probably actually didn't even know how good they were. Well, that, well, that for me is the important <laughs> thing. I think it's about pace and competition breeds higher levels, doesn't it? Because if you've got a good group of drivers, someone's always going to be on at any given day. So by definition, if you're winning, you're going to be doing well. Whereas if the standards are lower, it's quite easy to think, yeah, I'm I'm bossing this. Yeah, but you might have, don't work as hard have a tenth, two tenths, yeah. five tenths sat on the table that someone else competitive would not be able to pick up. But it, it's certainly good to see there is this kind of queue of drivers lining up behind Lewis Hamilton if, if you yeah. like. it's not it's not completely inconceivable all four of you could get into Formula One I'd, I'd say I would say definitely I'd say that's a definite possibility yeah Lando Norris kind of at the front of the queue at the moment given yeah. the, the, the McLaren but as you say George Russell not far well, behind we'll see there's uh you never know what the Red Bull program is going to do so um we'll, well, uh, well exactly I, I, we'll see. actually I mean yeah you are all part of a Formula One um, environment yeah. now yeah. as well aren't you because as well as you know you mentioned George and Lando and Dan obviously with Red Bull but Callum's now with Ferrari as well so there's that that kind of intrigue as well really to see how far their um, their F1 teams can take them. Well we'll talk a little bit about the Red Bull side shortly because it ties into our, our next topic which is the uh, the less positive side shall we say. Yes. Obviously the one year ban you had one year outright ban and then there was a year suspended this falls back to the infamous incident in 2015 in MSA Formula under safety cars went past 10 cars uh, to to crash into yeah, Ricky yeah, Collard. Yeah, details. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, some of the some of the listeners might not know, but well, I think it is actually to your credit that you've been willing to kind of take this head on. Remember at the Autosport Awards when you went up from McLaren Autosport, you raised it yourself. How do you look back on what happened and more importantly kind of what what you've learned from that? Because I guess a year a year is a very long time yes, <laughs> at any age really. Especially in racing terms, yeah. Exactly. So almost to, to go from where you were pretty much sort of on the floor with that band to where you've got to now is, is pretty remarkable. So just take us through that that whole experience. I think, yeah, obviously, there's no hiding from what I did. So, you know, like you said, I mentioned it at the, the All Sport Awards evening and all the rest. And, you know, I just, I think it's important to tackle, you know, 
head on really and, and not hide from it. So um, that's my first, that's what I thought when I came, come out of the band is look, you know, I'm not, not going to hide from this. It's something that I've done, but you know, now's the time to prove that that isn't an accurate representation of me. Um, I was a 15, 16 year old little boy uh, who wanted to win more than anybody else did. Um, so, you know, it, it, it made me do something stupid, which obviously I, I regret, but I think as I proved at the end of last year that, that I'm a, I'm a completely different person now um, I still have that spark and that, and that fire and all the rest of it you can't put that to one side completely but um yeah I've learned a huge amount of lessons from that and, and sitting out for a year um I wouldn't say it's it's like held me back I wouldn't say I've gone backwards I say it just stalled my career for a year basically I, I think that's the best way to put it yeah, just trying to put myself in, like it's impossible to put myself in the mindset of what I was thinking. Um, but well, and I guess it must be that kind it was, of thing where you look back and you, you try to understand it and the nature of something like that. Well, of course, you weren't thinking, well, now the correct thing to do would be to... It was, obviously, yeah. it was, a, it was a reaction but to a lot of a people will be A lot of people would be surprised, you know, if they saw my body language in the car when Ricky Collard hit me for possibly the 4,000th time that season there was not a lot of anger or shaking a head literally I, I was when I was in the position I was and he was on the inside I was almost expecting him to hit me and then he hit me and I was just like it just something just clicked and I was just like I, I'm not gonna let you beat me you know because he's hit I think he hit me off two times definitely once when I was in the lead another one when I was in the top three and took me back to the back of the back of the field so if I had say two wins more I'd have been 50 points ahead and I would have still been ahead of Lando so you know he actually he ruined that season for me you know and I lost I lost respect in the championship where they didn't deal with what he did you know accordingly uh, in, in the right in the right way uh, you know I took the law into my own hands you know and that's that's the biggest lesson I've learned you know I just I, I you know if somebody else wasn't going to do something about him I was, you know, that that was how I thought when I was, you know, a yeah, little little boy. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a life lesson actually. You know, you can. So I've applied that to lots of things in I do in life. So um, yeah, definitely s steepened the learning curve of maturity very very rapidly. And um, yeah, I feel like I'm in a, in a very ready place to be put in F1 whenever I need to. To be honest, well, Marcus, what? What do you make of that? There were various pressures at play there and circumstances. And I think one of the things we tend to forget is, you know, clearly the incident was it was unacceptable. The punishment was quite correct. But I think with single-seater drivers almost getting getting younger in recent years, and it is now normal for 16-year-olds, 17-year-olds to be in that kind of position in a way it wasn't 25 years ago, should we say. And, you know, live on television, there's, there's the eyes of the world on them. And obviously in, in Dan's case... Red Bull was kind of on the table. There was already a, an affiliation there, and there was a, a lot at stake for the, for the future. So, do you think that it's it's important to factor in all that and just at least, if not condone, understand how these things happen? You know, we've all had reckless moments, haven't we? Particularly yeah. in our younger days. Yeah, definitely. I think um, you know, racing drivers at the have got younger over, over the years. There's no so it's not you getting older. <laughs> 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 um, I mean, when when I started following racing as a kid, then you know most of the quick drivers in Formula Ford came into it at the age of twenty three or something like that, you know, and they'd been working three jobs to make ends meet. You know, the way the sport has moved, and um, we've got drivers moving in at moving into car racing at the age of fifteen or even younger with Ginetta Juniors or something like that. You know, Lando Norris started when he was 14 in that. You know, th these, are, these are young drivers performing in front of a big race day crowd at the track. They're on live TV. They're only 14, 15, or in Dan's case at that time, only just 16 years old. And there's a lot of pressure on them, a lot of media around. Um, the stakes are a lot higher because the sport's more expensive. As you say, you know, people that age can sometimes do really stupid things. Like I remember when I was 16 years old, there was 
some kid who kept blowing blowing my Bunsen burner out in the physics class. And when he did it for about the eighth time, I just gave him a massive smack in the mouth. <laughs> <laughs> so nobody was suggesting that I should get banned from using a Bunsen burner for a year or even for the rest of my life. But <laughs> In fairness, we've never allowed you to have a flame in the office in all the years at Autosport. So, I mean, I think um, so. We can say touch on something that happened last year in F1 with with Vettel hitting Hamilton under the safety car. You know, I think I, I wrote something on Facebook, not particularly ranty, but I got my point across. You know, obviously, I'll, I'll say to everybody who will be hearing this, you know, what I did was worse. You know, I say that straight away. Um, but you're you're an F1 and you're deliberately hitting somebody behind the safety car. Um, I think it's worth a little bit more than a 10 second stop go penalty. I mean, if you put that up against my one year ban it's pretty disgusting actually how you know obviously i was out of the ban at that point so but when i when i heard i was expecting a sort of three race ban to be honest i you know when i saw it i was just like i cannot believe it and uh yeah i felt i felt felt like the systems are a little bit against me in that one yeah i think uh, and again in that one vettel himself you know he reflects on the incident i interviewed him about it in, in mexico and he he can't really you you can't kind of explain it really because it's a it's a completely emotional reaction, isn't it? And totally. we've, we've all had them, and part of the challenge is to is to to get on top of that. The thing that has surprised me is obviously the era you've done that in social media. It keeps coming up, and obviously when when you won Macau, we saw comments on our social media saying, "Oh, but how can this guy be racing? He should be banned for life." Yeah. The same with McLaren Autosport. How can yeah. you give this a give this award to him given what's happened? And that to me is a slightly alarming response because I don't think any of us would like to be judged by how we were when we something we did when we were 16 we all we all would have done things and but how you know that that unfortunately you know if your career goes as you hoped and you have a long f1 career or great success in motorsport it's just going to keep coming up isn't it in of a course. way that it wouldn't have done in i've accepted that past. you know i'm sat here smiling now you know like that that just furious it, at these podcast hosts asking you. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean it's fine. Like yeah, like I said, I've got to, I've got to tackle it head on, you know. And people are obviously going to ask the question, but in in some ways it's quite positive because I've managed to come back, you know. And it's quite a good story and and all, and, and so on. So um, yeah, uh, I think I listen to people who uh, should be listened to, you know, not the general public behind their keyboards on Twitter. You know, if they're gonna, which they will continue to, uh, to to slag me off and and you know say all these awful things about me, but you know at the end of the day they're not going to have any impact on my career, so I just ignore them to be honest. And that's one reason why I, I don't do my own Twitter account. I just listen to the right people to be honest, and I, I don't let it get to me too much because um, I know that's not the real me and i know that i can be something special in the years to come that's what it's all about isn't it learning from the from the mistakes you know it's it's the usual thing isn't it you, yeah, I mean, it may, <laughs> you commit the crime you serve the time and then you yeah i, I mean it might have taken me three years to learn that lesson if you know what i mean but it happened you know in my first year of cars so i've you know learned all my lessons at once <laughs> so yeah so i think well, that's the positive way to look at it anyway what we've got to remember is that you know like any case of misbehavior or breaking the law or, or whatever you want to call it dan's case went to a tribunal they handed down the punishment and he served the punishment and he came out the other side and that's, motorsport and prison that, basically and that's, <laughs> yeah that that's the end of the story and um, because you know punishments are there in a way to make people to make people learn about things and make them make them better in the future that as far as i'm concerned is over and done with um it it should be i think it is with the majority of people who work within motorsport um, but it's just people are addicted to being outraged aren't they that's well, why that's people buy the daily mail <laughs> <laughs> very very true very true but the fact that at that time there were even before the incident there were question marks about what your future is going to be could would you be able to become a full-on red bull junior member so there's a lot at stake and the fact that you were then able to come back into racing and be a full-blown Red Bull Junior I guess it it says a lot about the impression you made on on them I guess Red Bull as a company it prides itself on being a little bit edgy so perhaps they'll be slightly more forgiving than a slightly more straight corporate I think they're more risky definitely um 
obviously at this point i again would like to say thank you for them for uh, for giving me this the chance i've been given you know and obviously continue to, to continuing to support me in 2018 uh i was slightly surprised when uh, i got signed as a as a full full junior driver coming from a ban but you know um i think a lot of people will say that that uh, helmet's risky decision is is paying off and um hopefully i'll be able to get to f1 and continue to prove him right <laughs> so uh, I, I that's one great thing about the red bull program like you said about others maybe being slightly more corporate it's difficult to say but you know i don't want to say too much um but i don't i doubt any other program would have given me a chance other than red bull so um yeah uh, i think I, I i fit their their criteria quite well obviously so uh yeah, thank you, really. <laughs> and the other the other thing I find interesting, actually, is that um, Timo Rumpfkarl, your new team boss at Motorpark, he's, he's, known, he's known Helmut Marko since, um, since he was very young, since Timo was very young anyway. And um, you know, Helmut obviously likes someone with a bit of spark. He's quite opinionated. Um, Timo is very forthright as well, you know. They're with both his, quite similar, his, yeah. his opinions. <laughs> and also there's, there's you in the mix as well. So it's actually quite a kind of rock and roll um group of people isn't it's it it's <laughs> exciting i would say yeah i i don't think we're perhaps as robotic as some teams and some drivers are which i think you know looking at what f1 is like at the moment it's uh it's lacking a little bit of, of that i would say i think a lot of people will agree so um hopefully i'll be able to bring a bit of excitement to it <laughs> well i think at this point we now have to say goodbye to marcus simmons thank you very much for your insight we're going to welcome uh, kevin turner in to talk a little bit about the mclaren autosport brdc award evaluations okay welcome kevin kev you're one of the uh the very well appointed judges of the mclaren autosport brdc award so obviously you were part of the judging panel that's uh, that chose dan tictum as the winner at the back end of last year can you just talk a little bit about what impressed you about Dan, how he won this, how strong his performance actually was? Um, well, in terms of how strong his performance actually was, um, I'd say I've been a judge since 2008 uh, and some years are really hard and some years are easier. And this was definitely one of the easier years because Dan was on it in everything. For me, the the, the moment that you really, you really look for early on is who comes out of the blocks and nails the car early on and gets down to a time quickly. Partly because that's really relevant to how racing is now. You know, you don't get weeks and weeks and weeks of testing normally. You've got to go out there and do the job, come in and get the car sorted and move things forward quickly across a race weekend. So that's a big plus. And Dan was on it straight away. And there was one particular session where it was um, wet but drying. And we, we took the decision to put them on slicks, which the F2 guys were, the guys running the F2 cars weren't too uh, too sure about it. Uh, but it was fine. But but Dan was really impressive. The first I was standing at Stowe the first time he arrived on a flying lap. I thought he was going straight off the track. Uh, but he did it every lap and um, and was and was quite a quite a bit quicker than the other three finalists in that particular session. So um, yeah, it's standout performances like that. Um, and then how it really it, a lot of it's lap time. You know, we talk about fitness and all that sort of stuff, which is important. But the um, you know, but it's, it is lap time. Did it feel like that from your perspective? Did you think, yeah, I'm getting on top of the car well? I'm I'm having a good impression. What does it actually, what's the experience of being a finalist? Because it's it's really unusual, isn't it, what you're doing and you, you don't know what the other three finalists It's like no do. other racing event. Yeah, it's it's completely different. I mean, not knowing what you're, you know, the other finalists are doing throughout the event is the hardest aspect of it, I would say. I think that the way I approached it, I just, similar to how I approached races, it just with a, a very, now very calm mindset, but um, quite a fair amount of simulator stuff. And there's quite a, an interesting way that you approach that, which is unlike, say, you would when you start a race. And then that's just to sort of drive at 90, 95%, but consistently. So um, I was using that sort of technique quite, quite a lot, although it may have looked like I was ragging it a bit more. Um, I was trying to sort of get to a consistent point as early as possible to, to really feel the car. And then I just um, I started to, to push more and more. And I think it, I got used to the car very, very quickly. Very different to anything I've driven with the, the massive turbo and the bit of lag and all the rest of it. It was uh, an amazing two days uh, in, in every aspect. Yeah, and in, in Dan's defence, I wasn't suggesting that he was uh, on the verge of an accident the whole time. I don't think he had any incidents at all, really, did you? 
um, over two days. So that's you know that's 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 not luck or coincidence. That's clearly got got a process there. But it's interesting about the lap times. Because every year we talk about whether we should give the finalists lap times, and we always shy away from it for two main reasons. Really, one is you don't want that will affect how the how it progresses. Um, you know, if someone sees that they're quickest, they might back it off and then get overtaken. Or you might get someone overstretched and then we've got a car in the barriers and that's not, not good. And also, I think it's probably quite good from a driver's point of view is to forget about times and just genuinely try to get better at whatever it is you're doing. Doing your completely your own thing, exactly. You, you literally just can't focus at all on what the others are doing. The only, the only time where I was ever thinking about the others is when I could see them in the distance and I was catching them <laughs> that's the only time I was thinking okay this is this is good but apart from that uh you just have to completely ignore what they're doing and and uh, focus totally on yourself I think that's probably a good approach generally isn't it in road sport not just not just for those <laughs> two is, days it can be quite a selfish sport yeah <laughs> but uh yeah now Kev obviously we're very uh protective of, of the data etc we don't really publish a great deal of information about the relative performance but the one of the joys of the audio medium is you've got some uh, printouts of some data there that maybe can uh, shed a little bit more light on uh, on Dan's performance so what what can you see there can you describe to the listeners what you actually saw in the in the empirical data about his, his performance yeah so what, what I've got really is uh, is effectively the pace of the drivers um in all the cars, in each of the sessions, they all have multiple runs in, in the three cars. So that's the Formula 2 car, the old uh, Williams-built car, the uh, DTM Mercedes and the McLaren GT3 car. Um, and what I've done here is obviously Dan's in the room. We've got, we've got his, his, his lines, his graph in blue and everyone else is in grey. And what the first thing you can see is that he was first or second quickest in every single one of the F2 runs. And that's the car that we do most of the running in. Uh, and when I say second, he was second once. So, you know, that, that gives you, gives you an idea. So consistently down at being the quickest, um, right in the mix of the GT as well, um, you can see that Dan, the DTM run looks bad, but that's because there was it was across two days. It actually wasn't, and that's where we use benchmark drivers and we get the engineers in because track conditions change, and obviously the bare lap time doesn't doesn't tell you anything, so you have to know them in context. Um, but that's the great strength of the F2 car is we've got all four guys out at the same time. It was a shame the DTM running that it was damp. I think well, I was already quite quick as I can see from from there, but I I, I think I could have impressed quite a lot more if it had had it been dry and i I can say from looking at the data even without looking in great detail it does say exactly that you can everyone's probably at a good level but you can see that that one trace in the data sets does show how how strong the performance was and you can have had no idea that (laughs) that, that i I knew i was doing quite well you know as a driver when you're feeling in sync with with yourself and the car and everything a bit like a dance you know um and it was all it was all flowing quite nicely i think as the event uh, the event finished, I was pretty confident. Then he had the six week wait, um, which Macau was in the middle of. Um, I had some good distractions actually in that six week wait, but it was gave you time to dwell on maybe the small mistakes you did make. And I was becoming sort of more and more sort of dubious of my performance. Um, but uh, I stayed confident throughout throughout the wait. But I was raising more and more questions as as the wait was was going on. So uh, and then on the night. Uh, when it was going to be be uh, announced, I think the, the the dinner started four hours before it was announced, and I felt like I'd aged about twenty five years in that time. So, so I guess it's more like a release almost when it when yes, it's announced. Yeah, I was just uh, yeah, I just wanted to get the weight done with. To be honest, and obviously wanted to win more than anything else. When it got announced by the legend that is Mr. Coulthard, it was a pretty amazing. Uh, amazing feeling uh, one i would say one of the best if not the best uh in my racing career or slash my life dc didn't know beforehand is good i was really pleased that he heard his message right over in his earpiece because that'd be uh that'd be pretty embarrassing wouldn't it but uh, we haven't had a last year's oscars moment no we haven't haven't yet so far it's all gone smoothly hasn't it what, what was quite funny is when we all went backstage um to to just uh, about 7 30 i think to do like uh, where we walked onto the stage and said hello to everybody you know in the crowd and all the rest of it all the trophies were lined up and there was the plaques that would have been stuck to uh, the trophy and we saw Inam Ahmed and all of us looked at each other Inam wasn't here at this point and me and me and Harrison and Max uh, and, and sorry and I we were like oh no here we go we got we got the winner and then we sort of moved the plaques and then we had all of us and then there's was, was a bit of a worry though <laughs> it's quite funny they even produced uh, stickers because obviously we always put the winner's name on the McLaren F1 car that's uh, uh, on the night as well uh, and we always have all the names 
of all the vinyl stickers produced, and they're literally only put on the car as you're coming. There's up. no way of it's, anyone knowing. It's, it's um, incredible. It's quite a small number of people that. Well, that, how, how many that of us actually ever know. know? It's only a only a handful. Isn't it, it is. Really? Yeah, I mean, even the teams involved. I mean, obviously, they will have a good idea the engineers and teams, but they don't tend to see what the drivers are doing in the other two cars that they're not involved with running. Um, and we do sometimes have it where a driver will be particularly good in one car, but might be weak across the other two. So they, they can never be sure themselves. So they give us their feedback. Um, they give it both in terms of telemetry and data, but they also, we, we speak to the engineers and the guys running the cars and saying, you know, who, who's impressed you? Because you want to know who, who can work with the guys within the team as well. Um, so no, it's probably quite a, a lot of people think they know, uh, but the, the actual number of people that do know on the night is um, is usually quite small. The performance in the cars is, is the main part, but there's other things you're doing. You, you know, you're getting impressions from the engineers of how these how these drivers work. You're doing interviews with them to see the impression. What about the the kind of what you might say the out of the car side of things? Was there a, a strong impression there as well? Uh, yes. Yeah, so I mean, there's a, there's fitness tests, um, which this year actually I think all the all the guys were pretty pretty even. I think that that uh, even in the short time I've been involved, that the the message has kind of filtered down. I think that that you need to be on top of your on top of the fitness even when you're in the in the junior ranks. So um, I know Dan wasn't entirely happy with certain parts of his own fitness test, but I mean they were it was certainly on a par with the other guys. It was a little bit off what you'd expect, say, an F1 driver to be doing, but I think that's probably not unreasonable for guys who are, you know, 18, 19. Um, and then obviously, you know, interviews and things. But yeah, I don't know if you want to have a have a say on that, Dan, with the, uh, with the fitness tests. Um, yeah, I, I don't think... Uh, no, I was probably not F1 ready at that point last year, no. Uh, In fairness, you didn't need to be at that stage. No, I didn't need to be, but I think... Um, this year I'll be I will be training for that eventuality. Um, obviously, I've got to focus mainly on my uh, on my um, main campaign, which is F three. But you know there could be a chance this year, even where I'm thrown into an F one car without much notice. So um, that's what I'm going to be training for this year. But I would say yeah, last last year in the, in the middle of the season when we we're all sort of September time, which was effectively middle of the season because we had a lot in the uh, end of the season, uh, end of the year, there was a lot a lot of races. Um, I think all of us, we all say the same thing, is when you're busy in racing, it's hard to keep on top of your training. You know, so a lot of it, the bulk of your training is preparing before the season. Uh, but yeah, I will, uh, I will and am improving. This is the case with Formula One drivers as well, actually, there their fitness tends to deteriorate a little bit. Yeah. Their, their overall fitness, they're still race fit and everything. Yes. But they'll, you like, have to be August ahead break, of what you should yeah. be for the, by the end of the season yeah, when you start exactly, the season. Yeah. And they'll yeah. normally do a bit of a top-up in the August break. Exactly. I mean, I think that's one of the reasons why we include things such as uh, you know, such as the fitness and simulators and interviews and stuff. Not necessarily that it's going to be the deciding factor. I mean, you'd have to have drivers who are really, really close uh, for that to be the deciding factor. But it's it's good, I think, because those kind of things are part of modern motorsport. And it kind of is, is good feedback. So we win or lose the award, we, we can give decent feedback to the guys. You know, Derek Warwick, who, who sort of really leads the charge with the judges. Yeah, I think he said to you, Daniel, you should always be uh, a, a level higher on the fitness than you're racing at. So that when that, that test chance comes through, you can jump in. And yeah, and there have been quite a few drivers in the past who I know that have had that chance that have maybe been quick for a lap and then they're, they're next given up or something. And and they've kind of missed their opportunity, um, and we sort of want to. And Derek in particular wants to make sure that that doesn't happen to any of the any of the, the drivers that, that we see. Well, the world's changed a lot, hasn't it? Gone are the days when people would make their F1 debut and barely be able to hang on for for race distance, and they're not yeah. fit enough. And have a fag when they get out. Derek <laughs> tells a really good story, actually. So when he went back from sports cars into Formula One. And I think he was doing a test for footwork for 93. Yeah, yeah. He at Estoril. Last season, wasn't I think it was Estoril. And he said basically he realised in his first run that his neck uh, wasn't going to make it through um, beyond half a dozen laps at a time. So he said, I just did each I did each run and come in and ask for setup change. He just made it look like that was the way he always operated. He said that was enough to get him through the day. And then he went and obviously, I mean, Derek Warwick's always been blag a it. guy. But absolutely. Blag yeah. it. <laughs> when, when all else fails, just make something just up. Just blag. That, a blagging skill is always, is always going to help you. Yeah, racing drivers are known to be quite good at that. <laughs> <laughs> and just briefly, Kev, we have talked about this at Nauseam, you know, Dan, by asking me about it earlier. But again, we had lots of the complaints about the, the ban and how Dan can be eligible. Did you uh, did you address that in terms of the process in the interviews? Was it something that was in any way factored in? It's how they perform 
on the day. It's not it absolutely shouldn't be held against him. But what was this? Did this make him a special case in terms of the way? he was interrogated shall we say uh, no I wouldn't say a special what I would say is it came up at the, at the. I always think that kind of thing you get out of the way long before you get to the test days so the test days are a clean slate and you get on with it you don't factor in anything else other than possibly levels of previous experience and you're trying to factor in what cars they've driven before um, but no so it came up in the discussion where we were picking the four finalists um, and we basically all pretty much agreed that he'd, you know, he'd, he'd served his time he'd come back you know, the, the MSA had given him the penalty we had a debate about whether it was too harsh or too lenient. There were people on either side of, of that fence, but the ultimate agreement was But he served his time, he's back, you know, get over it, basically. Um, and 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 I think that that, that both the award and Macau hopefully have, have allowed Dan to banish that particular demon, and, and I'd like to think that that would go beyond that as well. You know, the point I made in the magazine a few weeks ago was that we've had, you know, last year we had a you know, four-time world champion, you know, driving to someone under a safety car and he got oh, a 10-second penalty. So, I mean, that, yeah. let's let's have some, you know, balance. Why, why when you're, you know, I'm sure everyone has done stupid things and they, what, 15, 16? Yeah. So, you know, it's just that not many people do it in the public eye. Um, and, you know, I'm sure Dan would, would agree that it wasn't probably, probably his best move in a racing car, but it's he's yeah. learned the lesson, moved on and... You know, it's, let's get on with it now. So, no, it didn't come in into the Silverstone test, but it was talked about when we were doing the, the, the finalist selection before that. As it should be, really. And I guess it was also positive from you guys' perspective because normally the winner is decided fairly shortly after the after the evaluations and then Macau happened. It's very thorough. I mean, I, I've not been directly involved with this for, for a long time, but I've seen how these evaluations used to work back in the day when Paul DeResta won it, for example. And you knew he was the correct winner, obviously. But then when he goes to Macau and wins, does that just give you that extra little bit of satisfaction in terms of, yeah, uh, we were right that he's very good, but also, well, this will help validate our uh, Well, the, the, our um, I think it would be fair to say that there was a sort of self-congratulatory set of emails that went round that Sunday <laughs> night, Monday morning. Um Haven't Especially bearing okay. in mind that the, 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 the two, the obviously the, the 2017 winner had just had won the race and the 2016 winner was in his slipstream crossing the line. So that was quite a good sort of moment for McDonald's or BRDC award and British drivers generally with Ando Norris second. Uh, we'll come to that in a minute, I'm sure, Dan. Um, but uh, yeah, so there was that. But we did get asked, oh, you know, is he only, after Dan was then announced as the winner, has he only won because he won Macau? Well, I was, can assure everyone that decision was made long before Macau. And if we were just going on race results that people have scored during a given season, we wouldn't probably spend all the time and money that we do uh, at Silverstone and the various other things involved, you know, it is a separate contest. It would, yeah. it would be a lot easier if you were going to preordain it, it, it and base it, it on that. Well, to do as David Coulthard pointed out, he won because someone at Autosport decided in 1989 that he was the best driver that year and here have an award. And yes. since then, of course, that we've, we've, I mean, it's cracked up and up and up and up. Uh, the amount of detail we have, and if we want, we can get an onboard from any any moment in the F two running. I mean, it's 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 so much information. You have to you know be selective about it, really. That's why um, it's such an amazing thing to win, though, because you know it's all that thorough and yeah. So very very nice feather in the cap. Exactly, and and very well deserved. Well, hopefully that's given everyone a little bit of an indication of why Dan Tixum is someone to keep a very, very close eye on over the coming season. So good luck for the uh, for the F3 season. Oh, Kev's got a point. Can I ask Dan a question? You can. So uh, I, I really enjoy uh, speaking to Dan and Lando about the other one because there's obviously a bit of needle in there. I and mean, they're obviously coming up together and they've known. You know, Lando, I think, knew that Dan had won. He sort of came up to me before and went, oh, who's won then? And oh, I can't tell you, obviously. Who do you think? Oh, he went, oh it's Dan, isn't it? And uh, and know when Dan sometimes talking about other British drivers, sometimes Lando's conspicuous by his absence. So, 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 what's your what's your relationship? Do you think with with Lando? I know you had a bit of rivalry in MSA Formula as well that year. What's because you're you're bound to be sharing a, if all things go as they should, you're going to be sharing a Formula One grid at some point. Yeah, in the I would future. say that's very very likely. We touched on it briefly. but we spoke about George and Callum as well, but particularly Lando. Um, to be honest. I've got nothing really negative to say about him. I respect him as a driver, you know, and and as and as a person, he's, you know, he's done very very well. He's done all the jobs, you know, he's needed to do, and in some cases more. So, yeah, um, I have nothing bad to say about him. I think I, I, I he's not my best mate, obviously. <laughs> you know, I've got to beat him, but um, uh, yeah, you know, he's he's a well brought up, decent, you know, nice kid. 
Yeah, I, I, the reason one of the reasons I asked is I just really like that we've got this dynamic of uh, of well, three three of you at the moment, obviously with George at Mercedes, Lando at McLaren, and yourself at, at Red Bull, and you're all quite different characters. And I just think it would be it would be really amazing yeah. for British motorsport to have those three, you know, three of you up at the front uh, in a Grand Prix. That'd be you know, yeah, look forward to that. <laughs> well, the possibility isn't too many years away potentially. Mm. Well, you'll be able to follow all of the action from uh, from Formula 3 and, and Dan ticks some season on autosport.com through the year and also in Autosport magazine. Also, check out our Plus subscriber area online for lots of in-depth features on Formula 1, the whole world of motorsport. So thanks to Kevin Turner, to Dan Tickson, and also to Marcus Simmons, who left us earlier. We'll be back soon with another Autosport podcast. Music is 6am by Trilo, written by Marcus Simmons. See soundcloud.com forward slash Trilo Music. redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Social Podcast Network. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.